This week on AARP, The Perfect Scam. It was March of 2010. It's, it's, that's my day of infamy that I will never forget. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to AARP, The Perfect Scam. I'm your host, Will Johnson. Here in the studio with me once again is AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador, Frank Abagnale. Frank, thanks for being here with us again. Great to be with you, Will. Thanks. I know from talking to you, Frank, about Medicare fraud that it, it makes you pretty angry. Absolutely. I mean, I don't see you angry a lot. Maybe angry is the wrong word, but it fires you up, and there's reasons why. The story we're going to tell you about over the next three weeks is all about Medicare fraud and how one individual in particular took huge advantage of the system. But this is a rampant problem. I'm very I'm very passionate about fraud against the federal government, especially. Uh, last year in 2018, we had about $970 billion of fraud in this country. This is fraud, white-collar crime. This has nothing to do with burglary, robbery, drugs, narcotics. This is all about white-collar-related crimes, of which about $400 billion of that was money stolen from the federal government. So when we talk about Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid last year in 2018 lost over $100 billion in fraudulent claims, $100 billion, which is pretty much average. It's been higher some years. But $100 billion, which is about 10 percent of both agencies, Medicare and Medicaid's combined budget. So when we talk about Medicare fraud, and we're going to talk about this a fair amount over the next three weeks, but it is someone who is submitting a fake, fictitious, false claim and making money off of that. Every, uh, and yes, and that's everything from transportation drivers who defraud Medicare saying they've carried these many passengers to the hospital when they didn't, to the person selling over a hundred wheelchairs and saying they've never actually sold one. Uh, all these filing of false claims. And there's actually a cycle of fraud and then crime when this happens, when it originates from outside of the country, right? Absolutely. Can you I, that? I've always taught agents that it's important to. Uh, follow the money. And I've had the opportunity to teach two generations of agents. And I've always taught them you have to follow the money to understand what's going on. So what you look at when you have these frauds, it's usually foreign people doing them in foreign countries that are committing these crimes against American citizens. And they're stealing from the U.S. government. That money leaves the country, but it will always boomerang and make its way back. But when it comes back into our country, it comes back in the form of drug trafficking, child pornography, much more hideous crime. So it amazes me and has always amazed me that we as taxpayers allow people to steal billions of dollars of our taxpayer money and then allow that money to come back and be used to cause us harm, uh, physical harm. Explain that to me just a, a little bit more. So someone that has a, uh, a company with uh, wheelchairs, you're saying that in a lot of cases that could be someone from outside of the country or who's moved here? Who sets up a phony company. Okay. They have a phony website. They basically register with Medicare. Medicare doesn't really check. Oh, they don't out. even exist. Yeah, they don't even exist. They don't check them out. All right. Well, this week's story is about someone who does exist very much. He is very real and he cost people a, a, a lot of money and a, a lot of health issues over the years. Let's get into the story of Dr. Fareed Fada. We'll be back with Frank Abagnale in a, in a few minutes. Greed is at the heart of scams. It's the primary motivation. When it comes to health insurance scams and Medicare fraud, the story is no different. In essence, when someone like a doctor, a healthcare provider, anyone working in the medical field makes a false, fraudulent, or fictitious claim to Medicare, that's a crime and considered Medicare fraud. And Medicare fraud in the United States is a multi-billion dollar problem. 
These people are getting rich by filing claims for services that were never rendered, equipment never delivered or used, and in some cases for medication that was never needed. But over the next three weeks, we're going to tell you a story about a man who was driven by something more than greed. The scope of this scam is staggering. We've never encountered a scam that was so heartless and affected so many people. Not just the amount of money, but the impact on the lives of victims and their families. It's a story of false hope and dire consequences and lives hanging in the balance. Always question stuff. Question everything they do for you. Your life as you know it is over. This is going to change your life for the next couple of years. So then he, you know, stood up and, you know, did his little song and dance. And it was, it was like you just wanted him to sit down and shut up. This story is also about how far we would go to expose a crime. When do we choose to look the other way, and when do we decide to risk our own careers, our lives, and reputations? How much would we put on the line? I didn't look at the center anymore like a place that people came to be healed. I look at the center as a burning building. Angela Swantek has been an oncology nurse for 27 years. She fell into oncology early on in her nursing career, and over time, she came to love the work. It is definitely a thankless job, but that you don't go into nursing for the accolades and the pats on the back. You do it because it's a calling. In March 2010, Angela was looking for a new job. At the time, she'd been a nurse for 19 years, and as a single mother of two daughters, she was looking for work closer to home. She applied for a job at an oncology center near Detroit in downtown Rochester, Michigan, and got a call back to come in for an interview. The large and thriving practice was run by a well-known cancer physician, Dr. Fareed Fada. Before going in, she asked a few of her colleagues about Dr. Fada and the office. Every single one of them made like this grimace. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And they said, I don't know, there's just something fishy about him. Hopeful, Angela went in for the interview on a Tuesday morning and spent time meeting with the office manager. At the end of the day, briefly, she met the man in charge, Dr. Fareed Fada. He's well-groomed and professional-looking, dressed in his usual attire of a white lab coat. He's not tall, under six feet, in his 40s. I didn't have much of an impression with him. He, he kind of poked his head into the office, um, looked at my resume, was very impressed. He was impressed with where I worked, because where I worked, the doctors were pretty reputable. Angela went home and that night got a call with an offer for the job. However, she hadn't seen any of the infusion rooms where patients are treated or spent time with any nurses on that first day of interviews. So she asked if she could come back in and job shadow for a few hours before accepting. On Friday of that same week, March 30th, 2010, she goes back and meets with the nurse in charge. walked me through how they do things there and I you know I immediately noticed that um, the chemotherapy has to be disposed in a it's a bright yellow bucket and the guidelines for chemotherapy specify that those yellow buckets are supposed to be next to every single chair and so when the chemotherapy is completed, the nurse just takes, the, takes it down from the hook and right into the bucket. So I said, well, you know, why is there, you only have one bucket in the, in the clinic? And Claire said, yeah, it's no big deal. We have one, you know, we, this is where we, we put all of our, we, we, 
you know, throw all of the chemotherapy out. And I said, well, you know, there's really supposed to be one next to every single chair. Well, you know, that's, that's how we do it. That was her reason for everything. Angela then walks with the head nurse to an automated cabinet where patient medications are dispensed and labels printed out. And then she grabbed a Sharpie and started numbering the labels. And I looked at her and I said, why are you numbering the labels? And her answer was, well, this is so that medical assistant knows what bag goes next. And I said to her, I said, well, you realize that medical assistants are not allowed to administer any type of medication. Yeah, I know, but that's how we, you know, that's how we do it here. So okay, this, it must have been, was it awkward that here's someone, jo- a job prospect or a prospective employee sort of telling them how things should be done and they were just blowing it off? You know, I was wondering if she, when she was going to get irritated with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but she never did. And it you was like she was completely oblivious. And you don't sound like the type of woman who would just to hold back. Oh, no, no, <laughs> no, obviously. <laughs> Um, so that was, you know, like strike number two. Strike number three comes a few minutes later. And then she she grabbed this medicine called Nulasta. And Nulasta is an injection that's given 24 hours after the completion of chemotherapy. And I said, well, who's that shot for? And she said, well, that's for the patient. And I said, well, that's not how that's supposed to be given. And she argued with me. Yes, it is. And we were like two two two-year-olds. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And then she pulled out the nursing um, drug book and she opened it up, looked it up, closed it and put it away. And she said, well, that's how we give it here. So strike number three. So in my mind, I'm already thinking there is no way that I'm going to work here. But I stayed because I'm thinking, what the heck are they doing here? You're like curious and probably kind of shocked, right? Oh, yes. Yes. So then she gathers all of the chemotherapy and we go into the infusion room. So this was my first time like being in the actual infusion room where patients are. And he had probably about 16 or 17 chairs. And like I said, every single one of them was filled. And we walk over to the patient and she's explaining, you know, I've got your chemo. And I look at the patient sitting next to the gentleman and I look up at the bag that's hanging and I look at the label and I read the drug and my face just drops. I said to her, why in the world is that lady sitting there getting Velcade in a bag? So Velcade is um, a chemotherapy drug that's used to treat multiple myeloma. And the dose is um, like two, two cc's. So like two, two little cc's of fluid. And it comes in a syringe and the nurse starts an IV attaches the syringe to the IV and just pushes it over three to five seconds. It's just a quick push. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw the label that the chemotherapy was in a bag being infused in an hour, I asked Claire, I said, why in the world are you infusing Belcade in an hour? We don't push any drugs here. I'm like, what do you mean 
you don't push any drugs here. I said, this is a three to five second push. So in other words, this drug was sort of entering the patient's system over the course of an hour as opposed to a, a short, quick duration of a push. Exactly. What kind of impact or effect could this have on a patient? It completely changes the whole mechanism of action of that drug. Angela's experience at Dr. Fada's clinic had only lasted 30 minutes or so, but she had seen enough. And I can say on a stack of Bibles, in all honesty, every single patient that was sitting in those chairs was not getting anything. First, they were probably getting things that they didn't need, such as hydration, or they were getting things being administered incorrectly. What was your feeling at the time when you had that aha moment? Can you describe how it, how you felt? Like, is this like a, a pit in your stomach or is your I heart race? Uh, definitely had a pit in my stomach and I felt like sick inside because I looked at all of those patients and, and I was there one day for an hour and a half. So this is what was transpiring on a daily basis at that office. It sounds like something from like a horror movie, not to put too fine a point on it. But. It, it is a horror. It is a, it is a horror story. It was like a horror movie. But Angela still hadn't seen the end of it. What made me leave the office was there was another drug that, again, the nurse comes in a syringe and the nurse sits there and pushes it slowly through the IV. And I said to Claire, why is that adriamycin in a bag. Again, we don't push anything here. And I looked at her and I said, you know, um, thank you for your time. Um, I appreciate it, but this is not how I was trained. And so this is not going to work out. And I grabbed my purse and my coat and she said, well, thanks for coming. And I turned and looked at her and I said, you know, Claire, I said, I've been a nurse for a very long time and I'm just going to tell you one thing. Um, a jury will convict you. So you left that office, and what did what did you do, and what were you thinking? How were you feeling? Um, I got in my car and I started sobbing. And I, you know, I was in a situation that I had never been in before, and I had no idea. I. What I, my first instinct was to get out of the car and run into the office and tell all of those patients, you need to get out of here. Uh, but, you know, you can't do that <laughs> because um, that's, you know, professional suicide. Angela says she did the next best thing. She goes home and Googles how to turn in a physician. She's not wasting any time. I stated twice in my um, allegation that he was harming patients. And thinking, okay, I would think that the state of Michigan would be interested in hearing and learning about a physician who is harming cancer patients. You have to appreciate how big a deal this is for Angela or anyone in her position. She's clearly not taking this new job close to home. And now she's looking into reporting a well-known cancer doctor with one of the area's largest practices someone she hasn't even worked for. You know, you really take a chance on, um, you know, damaging your career, your reputation um, by, by doing so. So that was a huge risk back in 2010 to write up that allegation and send it into the state. And I felt 
150% confident that what I saw what, and, you know, what I reported was erroneous. I mean, it was what he was doing was just awful. Angela's allegations are serious and potentially career-ending for Dr. Fareed Fada. She puts the letter in the mail on the 1st of April 2010, and she waits and waits some more. It wasn't until May 2011, over a year later, that she heard back from the state. I finally got a response from the state of Michigan, and they said that they did a thorough investigation and found no violation of the Michigan Public Health Code and that the case was closed. And thank you. My personal opinion is that the letter was opened um, in June. It was stamped received and it sat on somebody's desk for over, for until for the following year. year when it was found and like, oh, crap, we need to address this. Yeah. And let's type up a quick, you know, a quick letter. What Angela saw at Dr. Fada's office rocked her to the core. She stayed at her current job, but made no secret about the fact that she made allegations. She talked about it with friends, family and colleagues. Eventually, Angela takes another job closer to home. Angela never saw Fada in person again. The case was closed, or so it seemed. Over the years, Dr. Fareed Fada treated thousands of patients at his Michigan clinic. One of them was Robert Soberay. In 2009, the year before Angela Swantek had her interview with Dr. Fada, Robert was experiencing debilitating back pain. He was in his late 50s and nearing retirement as an operations manager at a GM plant near his small hometown of Milford, Michigan, just northwest of Detroit. He got checked out and was diagnosed with three slip discs. Doctor says, we need to do surgery. He goes, we'll take and fill them in, put the hardware in, titanium hardware, and you should be all right. Well, they did that, and about two months later, I was worse off than when I started. I just, I was sick. I could not do anything. I couldn't walk. I was so sore. It just killed me to get out of bed. Robert's doctor ordered another x-ray to see if he could find out what else might be going on. He did that, and he goes, there's a piece of bone missing. And he showed me on the x-ray, there was a black spot, and he goes, there should be bone there. Concerned about the missing bone, Robert is sent to oncologist Dr. Fareed Fada for more tests and evaluation. Because there's bone missing, he thinks maybe there could be some cancer connection. Okay. Right. He thought, you know, thought maybe cancer first thing. That's what he said. He thought, thought it was cancer. He goes, if there's bone missing, you know, and not looking right, he goes, it's got to be cancer. So Fada met with Dr. Fareed Fada at his busy cancer clinic. He immediately liked him and felt he was in good hands. He was so soft-spoken that yeah. you couldn't help but like him, you know. And you've seen on the walls, you've seen all his awards and uh, newspaper clippings and magazine clippings of how good he was and what he's been doing for the country and the cancer. He knows everything. So, you know, he thought this guy was the greatest thing that walked on the face of the earth. He fit the description of what you would you would want from a doctor who's treating you and getting help. Yes. After getting tests done, Robert went back a week later to follow up on the results. He goes, there's something wrong. He goes, but we're going to do a biopsy, bone marrow biopsy. So next week I did a bone marrow biopsy and that was the worst thing I ever been through in my life. Was Bill Bone there? I was worse than surgery. Yeah. And uh, he got that about two weeks later. Got back. I was due for another injection, and I seen him the following day because you never can't do both on the same day. They said you were due due for another injection of what? Uh, he was giving me Zometa. Okay. And what was that Zometa. for? Uh, bone cancer. 
So he had blood, blood, blood cancer. So he had already diagnosed you with cancer. Well, that's what he thought. Yeah, just talking to my my surgeon and getting uh, X-rays from him. That's what he thought it was. So he immediately put you on some type of chemotherapy. Yes. Yeah, he put me on, on the therapy of zometal infections, then iron injections and uh, hydration injections. Did he have a conversation with you saying, "Hey, look, you know, it looks like you might have cancer"? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, he did that. Yeah, because you know, there's a good possibility that's what I'm going to start trying the zometa. A good possibility you got cancer, and that's a shock, you know. Yeah, what, it is, it is a shock. What was that like? I mean, can you describe the experience? Oh, my, the first thing that hit my mind when I when I heard it was I looked at my wife because she was she went to every appointment with me, everything. She went through everything. Yeah. And uh, I looked at her, and all I could think of was, what's she going to do? You know, I, I'm I'm at loss. I don't know what to do. And she looked at me and just. Kind of start crying, yeah. You know, and I, she tried to hold it in. She finally got her composure. And I got uh, minded. I didn't start in there. I just went numb, totally blank. Fada's convinced Robert has some form of cancer, but the biopsy will reveal the extent of his condition. So Robert waits another week and goes back for the results. He said, "Yeah, he's." Just, you got blood cancer, bone cancer. It's a called multiple myeloma. Okay, what's that entail? And he told me that you'll be on injections the rest of your life. We'll give you some more iron injections, or I mean, uh, well, yeah, injections, but transfers fluids and hydration. Robert is also given morphine for pain. Starts a three-week cycle of radiation treatments. Oh, it, it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Sick. I was so sick. And uh, anyway, they, after the third week, this doctor that he had do it, perform it, looked at me and she goes, well, I think you need to come back for another three weeks. And she goes, I'll inform Dr. Fada. And I goes, I ain't coming back, no. Robert refused to go back for more radiation, but he kept doing chemo injections and taking medications. Fada told him without taking anything, he might have six months to a year to live. With the meds, he could live for years. But the treatments and the pain meant Robert could no longer work, and his wife, spending most time by his side, lost her job too. Insurance ran out, and before they could get new insurance, he was paying out of pocket for medicine. And so I had to buy my own uh, Zometa. Which is expensive. $1,500 a shot, plus, you know, you got your iron injections, your, your uh, hydration. Yeah. And then the uh, morphine and everything else, it was, it was running bills. We ran our credit cards up and everything else. We ran out of money, borrowed all we could. Eventually, Robert got disability, and they were able to get caught up, mostly. And Robert stuck to the program for two and a half years. So over two and a half, two and a half years, you were taking heavy-duty cancer medication. Right. In the form of a shot a month. It, right. For, for, well, it's a drip fluid. It was half hour to an hour. Uh, every time sitting in a chair. Going into Fada's crowded clinic for regular injections became a part of Robert's routine. 16 or 20, 20-some chairs, and everyone was full every time I went in there. Plus, he had uh, two rooms on a side for his special payments and that, and it was always full. And did you would you continue to see him regularly as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah, We see, see, I've seen him every two weeks at first for the first year and then every month after that. And over time, were you getting better? Oh, no, I was getting worse. But in his eye, like, was there ever a conversation then that you would yeah. say, look, I should be getting 
better, right? From the cancer, well, the cancer should yeah, be going away. My teeth were getting bad. I mean, they hurt. My gums hurt and everything. And I, then my teeth started falling off, breaking off. And I goes, "Hey, what the hell's going on?" So when I talked to him about it, he goes, "Oh no, not me. I'm nothing to do with me." I had a, a tooth up on top come out with the whole socket and all. So I had a hole in my gum. Mm-hmm. And that's when I told him, I said, there's something. It's got to be done. I guess this come up and this all of a sudden I got this. Then I started getting pains in my legs. Started hurting real bad. And I couldn't stand up straight. And he goes, oh, nothing to do with me. So go see your doctor. I went to see my doctor. I says, there's something wrong. I'm back with AARP's Fraud Watch Network Ambassador Frank Abagnale. Frank, Medicare fraud can cover, as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, a broad range, a, a huge range of different types of, of, of fraudulent activity. Yes, and in my 40-year career, I've studied a lot of them. This particular one is one that I taught in class. I had graphic slides about it uh, because I had never in my 40-year career saw anything so horrendous as this, a doctor telling perfectly healthy people that they had cancer for the sole purpose of being able to treat them with drugs, which were doing them more harm than any good could possibly do, just for the fact of being able to build a bill Medicare and Medicaid. And it seems like there are often people caught in the middle who either don't really know about it or might be looking the other way, but uh, in a lot of cases might be unwittingly part of a scam. Yeah, I mean, you might be working for that person and know that they're scamming people, and you, but you're being paid real well, so you look the other way. I mean, you know, that it's very unethical, it's very wrong, but unfortunately, money has a way of uh, corrupting people, and sometimes, you know, if you pay people enough money, they'll look the other way. And we'll return to the story of Dr. Fareed Fada, part two, next week. For more information and resources on how to protect yourself or a loved one from becoming a victim of a scam, you can visit aarp.org slash fraudwatchnetwork. Many thanks to our producers, Julie Getz and Brooke Ellis, audio engineer Julio Gonzalez, and of course, my co-host, Frank Abagnale. Be sure to find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. For The Perfect Scam, I'm Will Johnson. Are you 55 plus? There are many ways your community could use your help. As an AmeriCorps Seniors Volunteer, you can put your skills to work for the causes you care about, whether that's by becoming a companion for an older adult or a foster grandparent for a child, tutoring students, joining a disaster response effort, or fulfilling another interest. Choose how, where, and when you want to volunteer, starting at just a few hours a month. This is your moment to make a positive impact on your community and get back so much more in return. Visit AmeriCorps.gov slash your moment today.